Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. You know, we've been rushing headlong into a technological future. I mean, I guess you could make the argument we've been doing it ever since the Industrial Revolution started, but but it has especially accelerated, it seems to me, since the late 1970s uh, and the early 80s. That's author Brian Alexander, who I talked to earlier in the show about how much new technology like automation and robotics has upended jobs and communities, especially in places like Ohio, where he grew up. And at first, it seemed like great promise. And there have obviously been many benefits of all this technological change. But I think one of the very destructive parts of it has been that it has contributed to this erosion of community. That erosion, Alexander says, has been particularly powerful in states where factories have substituted robots for people and where solid blue-collar jobs now feel scarce. But for those who are part of building the technology that drives our lives, these sorts of changes have been going on for, well, ever. In the early 80s, the job of being a switchboard operator was on its way out. Daniel Theobald co-founded the robotics company Vecna, and he now serves as their chief innovation officer. I think in 1984, AT&T had 40,000 switchboard operators. Today, you know, a handful at most. And nobody really uh, that I know of is really lamenting the loss of the ability to sit behind a desk and plug wires in and out of a switchboard all day long. It wasn't great work. But the other side of the equation is really interesting, for me at least. And that is, if you were to try and handle today's communications using switchboard operators, it would take many, many times the population of the entire Earth. Technologies, Theobald argues, change. They always have. People who made their living constructing horse-drawn carriages, who made dresses to order, who had hat shops at a time when men and women thought it was undignified to go out without a hat, all those jobs, more or less, ultimately came to an end. You can't turn back time. You know, we have $1.776 trillion of R&D investment globally. 75% of that is outside of the United States. 90% of all the science and scientists and engineers who've ever lived are alive today. Former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Research Melissa Flagg says that even if America wanted to stop the advance of the sorts of technologies that can lead to fewer workers and car manufacturing plants, we couldn't really. The economy is too globalized. This time that we're hearkening back to doesn't exist. And so the question isn't, oh, we've rushed into it. The world has already gone there. And in order for us to think about fundamentally improving the lives of the next several generations, we have to actually ask them to help us figure out how do you transform or, or build totally new types of communities. I do think we're going to have to accept that as new things are created, some things that we remember with nostalgia will no longer exist. Flag is now the Northeast Regional Lead at the U.S. Army Research Laboratory. And she and Daniel Theobald, who started the robotics company, agree that the march of technology offers incredible potential for making our lives better. But in the short term, they say, our responsibility is to pay a lot more attention to people who have been displaced. You know, when that, when that person who has been working a certain type of job almost all of their life feels threatened that the world is going to change because of technology, that's a real issue. And that's a real hard issue to deal with. 
So, uh, you know, we need to do a better job in this country of taking care of those people, of training workers, of retraining workers, of having continuing education. But to, to blame the robots um, ultimately is counterproductive because we will end up in a place where we can't take care of the exact people that, that we're trying to protect. Do you feel like, I mean, you've spent, I think, pretty much your entire adult life making robots. Does it feel strange when you hear all the sort of coverage in politics, in the media about automation and, and you know, people feeling really alienated and upset because of sort of what technology and robotics are doing? Does it feel weird to be a person who creates robots? Yeah, it does. You know, and one thing that uh, is really important for me throughout that, through all that period of building robots as well, is we've really been focused on this idea of how do you empower humanity? How do you make life better for people? That's got to be the primary focus. And I believe very strongly that technology can do that. And by and large, technology has done that all the way back to the Stone Age. Um, Melissa, uh, I know you grew up in Missouri um, and your family had and actually has now uh, a cotton farm in Arkansas. Talk about what you see, not in Silicon Valley, not maybe in Boston or New York, uh, but there. So my hometown, Sykeston, trucking is the main industry there. So there's a lot of conversation that I've had with folks who I know who live in Sykeston and their thoughts about listening to conversations about automation. And they're scared and, and angry that people talk about it like it's exciting rather than talking about the impact. When I go to the farm, the flip side is it's allowed small farms to continue to exist and to actually make enough money to be relevant for families in ways that we couldn't have otherwise because having precision grading and no-till farming and, quite frankly, Roundup Ready cotton and things like this that have allowed us to do farming with fewer people, right? I mean, those tractors are basically robots that have satellite precision, you know, place the input here. And so it's kind of incredible to see both sides of it, right? It's really enabled individual families to farm in a way that they could never have done. And it's increased the yield of this land by just tremendous amounts. On the other side, right, you you see people losing jobs. And so I think when you start to have those conversations across communities in the same town, it's really exciting, because then you start to see these debates between people who really trust each other. And that's an intriguing, again, it's, it's that having the technologists in charge of the conversation is tricky. And you learn this in DOD because every single thing that a soldier or an airman or a sailor or a marine uses, a ship, a, a jet, right, a submarine, there are these incredible pieces of technology. But these are kids that came out of my hometown, right? And we've trained them to be in this universe and incredibly high tech. And so there are these incredible translators between, hey, you know, it can enable you and you can use it in amazing ways and you don't have to be a PhD computer scientist to do it. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Daniel Theobald, co-founder and chief innovation officer of Vecna Robotics, and Melissa Flagg, the Northeast Regional Lead at the U.S. Army Research Lab. Daniel, let's talk about another strand of this conversation, uh, which I think probably doesn't get talked a, a lot about um, in, in most media um, because we're very busy having the jobs and technology conversation. But I wonder how much people in technology 
worry um, that the U.S., and maybe because of some of these concerns, is falling behind in the world in terms of robotics and automation? Or, or no, are we doing great? And don't worry about it. You know, because we have a very high standard of living here, and because, you know, we're several generations in from significant events in the world, like World War II, et cetera, we sometimes forget that the prosperity we have here in the U.S. was hard fought. It wasn't something that just magically happened because, you know, Americans are the smartest uh, people in the world. That's not the case at all. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, we need to think about the larger global community and helping everybody do well. But there are a lot of economies out there that are highly, highly motivated to win, to um, improve their standard of living, to invest heavily in robotics and technology. Because what they realize is whoever owns that technology at the end of the day is going to have a leg up on every other region in the world. Hmm. Melissa, do you share those concerns? Do you worry that the U.S. is falling behind when it comes to sort of creating cutting edge technology? Everyone wants me to say I agree. I I feel really contrarian about this. The amount of funding going into research and development around the world is so big. I mean, $1.776 trillion. Can you wrap your head around that number? I can't. Yeah, I don't think anybody can. And so if I add $4 billion more to robotics in America, I mean, in a sea of $1.776 trillion, have I made us the winner? of robotics in the world. It's not a binary race, right? It's it's a we want to be able to leverage these discoveries and technologies in really creative ways that people want to get from us, right? And they're willing to pay us money for them. And that make people want to live in this country and to have a good quality of life. I just don't believe that this is a money problem. I think that we've become trained that if you have a complex problem, like big systemic change, spend money. So if I'm going to compete, say, with, I don't know, for instance, China, because they're on a very steep trajectory. And they're pouring a lot of money into this, right? Pouring a lot of money into it, and they're pouring a lot of money into research and development in general and educating people. But they have a very top-down system. They go with a strategy where people get in a room, they decide this is what we're going to do, they put money into it, and they send people out and say, do this. That's really not why we've been as competitive as we've been as a nation. We're very diverse. We're very bottom-up. We're very about much about competition. And it means that we look messy. And it's not controlled by the top. But it's also been extremely effective And it allows for an incredible amount of creativity and incredibly new ways to develop that we couldn't have imagined if we were just sitting around in a room in the Pentagon or, you know, at the White House or wherever. So I actually am very bullish, but we have to remember to train people to think. So I'm actually more, I'm less worried about money and about falling behind in technology. I'm more worried that by trying to get people to do what we tell them to do, that we're actually training people to think in terms of small amounts of money and getting into a strategy and getting access to a grant and getting people to give them more money than we are about what is the craziest, most exciting idea you can imagine. Does that mean, are you saying change the educational system? I think this is more about training people to think 
and supporting that creativity into crazy ideas and team building around much bigger ideas rather than just training graduate students to go after a grant from the government because all of their ideas magically seem to be exactly the size of the money they think they can get from me. (laughs) Be bigger than that. Finally, let me ask both of you, since you'd spend your time thinking about, in some ways, what the future is going to look like, helping to build the future, uh, thinking about, you know, what's getting funded and what's not. Where do you think things are going? Like, in a sort of realistic way, what do you see unfolding? Melissa, you want to start? I think that there's a really interesting convergence of data analytics and data sciences in almost every single aspect of our lives. And I think that we're generating volumes of information and data now that we can't imagine. And there are going to be a lot of civil liberties issues and privacy issues and we're going to be we're going to be challenged by this over the over the coming decades, but there are also going to be these incredible opportunities to go beyond what the human mind can do, right? And so I think there are going to be all of these opportunities that honestly we can't even imagine to do really discovery-based efforts to totally totally change the way we think about the world, how we engage in the world, how we engage in medicine, how we think about um, identifying our cancer based on pattern analysis of data, how we think about everything from dating to, you know, cancer treatment. To me, it's all data and data analytics. These cows are out of the barn already, so to speak, but how do we actually begin to wrap our heads around what this means? To me, this is one of the most interesting and exciting things. And when I look at the Department of Defense and I look at how how we think about data, I mean, I've heard two generals recently say data is the new oil. And wow. and we're not treating it like this this national treasure and this national asset that it is. And I think some nations are thinking about it that way. And so I'm very interested and very excited. And and uh, humbled a little bit by the sheer volume of data we're producing and how we may not be harnessing it. Uh, Daniel, do you want to give us a glimpse from your point of view into the future? Yeah, I'm very optimistic, Kara. Um, I think the communication and the dialogue is probably one of the most important things. The problem with the future is that it's unknown to some extent, and that can create fear. We, we were deploying robots at, a, you know, a, a very large shipper. We show up there and, um, you know, are, are meeting directly with the workers. Immediate first reaction is, oh, bringing in robots, when am I getting my pink card? And uh, the really interesting dynamic happened there. Um, you know, the, the representative from the organization said, nobody's getting fired. We're bringing in this technology to make your job better because we're having a hard time holding on to workers. Right? We can't find enough workers to do this work. So we're trying to make the job better. We're trying to make it so that you want to be here. And that changed their attitude. But then what changed their attitude even more is we said, hey, come up here, touch the robot. Look how easy it is to program it. Um, and as soon as they touched the robot and, and that uncertainty, that unknown started to fade away, the attitude completely changed, 180. And uh, one worker in particular, I remember very well, started, you know, interacting with the robot, you know, touching the touch screen, giving it tasks. And he said, wow, this is really cool. This is easy. This is going to make my job so much better. Hey, if I learn how to do this, do you think that I could then go and train other people how to do it? Right? So it turned from fear of the future to now excitement about what could the future be and how is it going to help me, you know, do better. And uh, that, that was really exciting to me. And, and I think that's really what ends up happening 
but we, we have this sort of worst case scenario fear a lot of times. And, and the best way to address that is through things like this, your show, talking about it, um, you know, helping people to understand that we have a decision and uh, how we use technology. And if we focus on improving lives, um, not just making money, it's going to be a really good thing. Daniel Theobald is the co-founder and chief innovation officer of VecNet Robotics. And Melissa Flagg is the former deputy assistant secretary of defense for research. She's now the Northeast regional lead at the U.S. Army Research Laboratory. Thanks very much to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And we want to hear your stories of work and technology. Do you feel like tech has helped you out at work? Tell us your story. You can email us at innovationhub at wgbh.org or tweet us at iHubRadio.